in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight is from Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Each psalm has a title. And the title of this psalm is A Psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. David, as you read in 1 Samuel chapter 21 from verse 1 to 15, fell in the hand of the king of the Palestines. So in order to deliver himself from the hand of the king of Palestine, he pretended to be crazy, insane. So the king let him go. And as I told you, you can read this story in 1 Samuel chapter 21 from verse 1 to 15. But the title of this psalm says before Abimelech. But when you read in 1 Samuel 21, you will find the name of the king Achish, king of Gat. So why there is difference in the psalm it says Abimelech, but in 1 Samuel it says Achish. In the past, the kings used to have a name that can actually be given to all the kings. Like in Egypt, Pharaoh. Pharaoh can be given to any king. Like in Ethiopia, the queen of Ethiopia is called Candace, as you read in Acts chapter 8. Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. This is not her name. That is the title that the queen of Ethiopia used to get. In the same way, the common name of the Palestine kings was Abimelech. So there is no contradiction. So, for example, if we speak about Egypt, somebody speak about the name, the real name, for example, Ramses, and another one says Pharaoh. Both names are correct. In the same way, his real name is Achish, but Abimelech is a common name given to the kings of Palestine. There are some Psalms, each verse starts uh, with a letter from alphabet in a certain order, in the alphabetical order. The first Psalm is Psalm 25. Psalm 25, each verse begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The second psalm is Psalm 34, the psalm we are studying now. If you read it in Hebrew, you will find that each verse begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, except one letter, V, is omitted. But other than this, you will find all the letters. Even though David's behavior reflects lack and weakness of faith. Because if he trusted God, he would not pretend that he is insane or mad. 
and God is capable to deliver him. But in spite of this lack of faith, God did not forsake him and saved him with his mercy. And we can see this different times in the scripture. David, when he lied, sorry, Abraham, when he lied and said about Sarah, his sister, actually God delivered him and he lied twice. Isaac also lied and said about Rebekah, his sister, and God delivered him. In this psalm, David's intention was to celebrate the goodness of God in his deliverance and offer praises and thanksgiving. So after God delivered him from this very critical situation, he wanted to offer thanksgiving and praises to the Lord. And St. Peter, in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 10 to 11, he quoted from this psalm. Who is the man who loves life and he wants to see good days? So this was a quote from Psalm 34. Also, this psalm is included in the Agbeya prayer in the third hour of the Agbeya. Because in the third hour we commemorate the descent of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is gift from God, the grace of the Holy Spirit. So we offer our thanksgiving and praises to the Lord for sending to us the grace of the Holy Spirit. This psalm is 22 verses, and the outline of the psalm from verse 1 to 3, praising God and inviting others to do the same. From verse 4 to 7, the testimony of David's deliverance. From verse 8 to 10, or are exhorted to taste and see the goodness of God. From verse 11 to 14, teaching the people of God. From verse 15 to 16, living under the watchful eye of God. 17 and 18, God the helper of the humble. And from 19 to the end of the psalm, God's care for his righteous ones. So let's start from verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So David begins by offering and giving thanks with great love. He is saying that he will praise God as long as he lives. And he repeats it, emphasis, saying, His praise shall continually be in my mouth. But we should not understand this verse literally, because it is not practical to have the praise of God continually in our mouth. So this word doesn't mean every moment, every day, every night. But it is an attitude toward God, attitude of gratefulness, attitude of thanksgiving, attitude of praise toward God. And also it means, literally, he will do so in any opportunity, in any opportunity, in time and place, to the end of his life, he will praise God. Also, these psalms 
of praising God will be sung unto the end of the times. David died and now he is in paradise praising God. But David through us and through all generations is blessing and praising the Lord at all times. And God's children have reason to bless God in times of adversity as well as prosperity because they believe that all things work together for their good. Some people may praise God during the time of prosperity, but children of God, they praise God either adversity or prosperity. They trust God as Paul and Silas will praise God in the prison. So the true spirituality is manifested through the internal constant joy expressed in continual praise even in the darkest moment. Again, the true spirituality. When my internal joy continues and expressed in praise even during the darkest moments. It is befitting to thank and praise God at all times and in all situations. As St. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And when we are joyful, what is the expression of this joy? Praising God. He said, and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. The words in my mouth are just declaring what is in our heart. Because out of the abundance of heart speaks the mouth. If internally I am grumbling against God, so my words will be words of grumble. But if internally I am joyful and grateful to God, this will be expressed on my mouth. According to scholar origin, he who gives God thanks at the time of joy is paying back a debt. But he who gives God thanks at the time of tribulation becomes creditor of God. Very powerful. Then in verse 2, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. David may be in the beginning have boasted in himself that he was smart enough to pretend he is mad or insane and thus he delivered himself. But even king could have arrested him even if he pretended to be mad. So, although First Samuel's account describes how David cleverly won his freedom by pretending madness, but he knew that he was saved by the hand of God, not his own wisdom. That's why he said, My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. Verse 2. So David is saying that he will not be alone in blessing God for his kindness, but others 
the meek, the humble, when they hear, they will bless him. For whosoever shall hear of it will praise and bless God. Because God enabled David by such cleverness to save himself. That's why he said, the humble shall hear of it and be glad. We are warned by the saintly fathers against misunderstanding of true meaning of meekness and humility. When he said the humble shall hear and be glad. Some people confuse humbleness with inferiority. The difference between humbleness and inferiority is that the humble person trusts God and can say with St. Paul, yes, I am nothing, but I can do all things in Jesus Christ who strengthens me. So although we know our own weakness, it is appropriate to trust in the work of God, who grants grants us the ability to practice the impossible. As St. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And St. Ambrose spoke about false humility or false humbleness. He said, beware lest you may bring yourself to perdition while practicing these things, practicing the exercises of humbleness. St. Ambrose continues, do not seek to appear more humble or godly than you should be, lest you would be seeking glory by abstaining from it. So why I want to be more humble or more godly in order for people to praise me? So although from outside I look like a very, very humble person, but in reality I am seeking vain glory which can lead to perdition. St. Ambrose continues and says, For many who attempt to hide their optional poverty, love, and fasting from the eyes of others, would be secretly seeking the admiration of others through their attempt itself. Namely, they would be seeking commendation while pretending to be far away from it. So if I'm hiding, for example, I'm taking taking vow of poverty, or I am strictly fasting during the fast, well, I am hiding it. So maybe why, while I'm hiding it, I am attempting that people will know about it and praise me and glorify me. This is false humbleness. The humble does not only glorify God, but draws the others as well to join them in glorifying God's name. That's why in verse 2 after he said, the humble shall hear of it and be glad, in verse 3 he said, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. So the humble not only glorifying God, but calling others to glorify God with them. As David here 
exhort the humble not only to praise God individually, but to join and unite with him in praising God. He said, let us magnify the Lord, let us exalt him. Definitely God is in no need of being glorified. But we, with the spirit of humility, should show forth and publicly celebrate his majesty and greatness when we experience his mighty power in our deliverance from any threatening evil. When God delivers us, then we should exalt and glorify him. We should then, with the psalmist, attribute our safety and our deliverance, not to our own cleverance or power, but to the care of God who watches over us. God cannot be made great by men. God cannot be made great by men. We can only declare how great he is. We can only declare how great he is. Verse 4. Now from verse 4, David explaining his experience, why he is glorifying God. So he said, I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. So David now proceeds to give reasons why God should be praised and glorified. David himself and others had found by experience that he was a God of hearing and answering prayer. When he was seriously pursued by Saul, when David was pursued by Saul, he fled to the Lord, seeked his assistance, approached God with confidence, and the Lord heard him with his usual kindness and mercy. The mercy of God raised up Achimelech the priest to supply him with weapons and provisions while David was running away. So he met the priest, Achimelech, and when he asked him for provisions and weapon, he gave it to him. He gave him the sword by which he killed Goliath. And soon after, David fell into the hands of Achish, the king of the Philistines. But through the protection of God, he escaped the danger. So at that time, David did not trust his own wisdom. But he sought the protection and guidance of God. The same when he fled to Gat and when he fled from Gat. In all his life, when David went through a difficult time, he sought the Lord. And the consequence of this trust was he delivered me from all my fears. From all my fears. Verse 5. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. I want you to notice verse 5, he spoke, I. I sought the Lord. Verse verse 4. Verse 5, he spoke plural. They looked. So in moving from I in verse 4 to they in verse 5, David indicates that this experience is not his own experience only 
but it is the experience of all the children of God. Many others have known and will know what it is to set the focus of their trust upon God and receive his help. And they draw radiance from God's own glory. Maybe he has Moses in his mind when Moses uh, was on the mountain with God. Then when he descended, his face was shining to the extent that people could not look at his face and has to put a veil on his face. So this radiance is the evidence that one has truly looked to him. St. Paul actually, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, he said the same thing when he said, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So St. Paul said, when we look at the face of God, we will be transformed, we will be radiant. So they looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. Who are they? The humble ones, looked up to God in prayer. When they were in distress, they looked up to God for deliverance, and their faces were not ashamed. So this is why they should join in praising and magnifying the Lord. David also knew that God would never forsake the one who trusts in him. God would give him confidence in the moment and justification in time. So in the moment, God gave him confidence to trust the Lord and deliverance in the proper time. In verse 6, David is speaking about his own experience. So as if he's pointing to himself, saying, This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. So David again emphasizes his personal experience of this truth. He was the one, he was the poor man who cried out to God, and God graciously answered. He shows the necessity of having a path to God while when in trouble by his own example. David was in so lowly state that he had to pick some food from Achimelech the priest. But David cried in faith and confidence, knocked by fervent prayer at the door of the divine mercy, and the Lord heard him. David proved by example, his example. So now in verse 7, he will prove by reason that we should approach God in all confidence. What is the reason? In verse 7 he says, The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. So David knew that the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear God and delivers them. Those who fear God and have such a protector waiting on their need should feel the greatest internal peace and security. 
We should not lose our peace because we know the angel of God is encamping around us. David was at a real low point, yet he was still filled with praise and trust. Why? Because he knows that God had an angelic camp all around him. Also, this verse support the doctrine of the guardian angels for everyone. And also another verse to support the guardian angel in Matthew 18, verse 10, when the Lord said, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Their angels. Then each one has a guardian angel. The angel of the Lord encamps all around them. So there are two views about the meaning of the angel of the Lord. According to many, it means just a heavenly angel sent by God to protect the righteous and to fight against their enemies. But others believe the angel of the Lord referred to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. An angel means a messenger. The father sent his son, who came down to earth as a redeemer and savior. But maybe the psalmist used it here in a general sense for the divine manifestation of protection. Then from verse 8, David will start exhortation. He said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So after telling his own experience, David challenged the readers in all ages to experience the goodness of God for themselves. He told them, taste and see. There is no other way of really knowing God, how good he is, except when you taste and see. Taste and seeing are physical senses. They are ways in which we interact with the material world. So, what he means in a spiritual sense when he said, taste and see? In some ways, faith is like a spiritual sense. And with the faith, we interact with the spiritual world. And with the faith, we can taste and see God when we trust him in faith, when we love him, when we seek him and look into him. So it is a call to experience the true love of God, because God is love. David was sure that the one who tasted and saw, the one who trusted in God, would not be forsaken. But God will bless this person. And both Hebrews chapter 6 verse 5 and 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 3 use this verse to urge those who, after being spiritually regenerated, 
begin to grow and to require nourishment. Verse 9, when he said, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for there is no want to those who fear him. There is no want to those who fear him. St. Augustine says, In case you still not understand, then you would become like King Achish. David will change his appearance, will desert you, and go in his way. So, St. Augustine is calling us to understand how God is sweet and good. St. Jerome says, Every goodness you possess is a taste of the Lord. Men would become perfect once they perceive they are not perfect. I like this. Men would become perfect once they perceive they are not perfect. Because once they perceive they are not perfect, they will rely on God and God actually will make them perfect. So after exhorting them to try how sweet is the Lord, he now encouraged them to fear him, to observe his commandments. When he said in verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints, there is no want to those who fear him. So David thought that to fear the Lord was much like trusting him and experiencing his goodness. So if you want to test the Lord and to experience him, fear him. If men really experience God's goodness, if they really experience the blessedness of trusting him, then they will also have an appropriate fear of the Lord. So fear leads to trusting the Lord and experiencing his goodness, and experiencing his goodness will lead to more reverence of God. When we approach God, we begin the journey. When we test Him, we advance in the journey. When we fear Him, we are made perfect. So approaching is the beginning. Testing is advanced step. Fearing God is perfection. Those who fear Him, there can be no want of things essential to their happiness. When he said, those who fear him, there is no want to those who fear him. What does it mean, there is no want? means they will not need anything essential to their happiness. Whether spiritual happiness or temporal happiness. Whether in this life or in the life to come. Because God will bestow upon them every needed blessing. All their needs will be abundantly supplied. But this statement, again, we cannot regard it literally. Mean, it cannot mean that whoever fears God will never in any instance be hungry or thirsty. That this is not the meaning of the verse. But the meaning of the verse is a general affirmation and in accordance with other statements in the Bible about the advantages of 
the true religion in securing temporal and spiritual blessing from God. But when God denies us any request or need, then God will give me the grace to be content without this need. And then I will not want it. And I'll be happy without it. So if God denied me a certain request, he will give me contentment. So I, I will live without it happily. As St. Paul said in Philippians, I had all and abounded because he was content. He said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 and 18, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned it in whatever state I am to be content. Indeed, I have all and abound, I am full. So, God blessed Paul with the virtue of contentment. That's why Paul felt, felt that he had all and abound. He said, I am full. I don't need anything. Then in verse 10, the young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Some suppose the young lions refers to the proud and violent, but it is simpler to interpret it literally. He's speaking about young lions. So the point that David wants to make here is that the strongest beast of prey, most capable of providing for themselves, may suffer want, but the people of God will not. So if such are the blessing promised to those who fear the Lord, how essential to know what the fear of the Lord is and to walk in the fear of God. David knew that the good things was not due to his own strength or might or wisdom. It was the goodness of God extended to those who seek the Lord and fear him. Those who put their hope not in riches, not in power, but in God, as those who fear God, They, however poor they are, they shall lack nothing. They shall not lack any good things. But these words have a higher meaning. Those who are attached to the vanity of this world are always hungry and in need. For they are always craving, materialistic, desirous of having more. But those who seek the Lord, those who seek a thing of infinite value, eternity, a thing greater than their desires, shall not lack any good thing. Verse 11, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So David having exhorted all to fear God, now shows the advantage of this fear and 
What is the fear of God mean? That's why in verse 11, David assumes the role of a teacher and addressing the readers as his children. David was a man of war, a psalmist, and musician, and here as a teacher. His concern was not to teach his people how to use the sword or spear as a man of war, how to play the harp as a musician, or how to govern as a king, but he was concerned to teach them how to fear the Lord, which is better than all the arts and knowledge, and even greater than offering sacrifices. What do we teach our children? Do we teach our children the fear of God? Or we teach them everything except the fear of God? And David believed that the fear of the Lord needs teaching and training. That's why he said, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So this verse also was used by St. John Chrysostom to show that godliness is an art which needs an instructor. John Chrysostom says, Acquiring the fear of the Lord needs teaching. Don't you see that virtue needs to be taught? Clement of Alexandria, he said, The speaker here is the Savior himself who calls his believers to listen to him because he is the teacher. And what David was expecting from the children to listen to him. Listen, not only give him the hearing, but observe and obey him. That is the word of, that's word listen means. He wanted them the fear of the Lord. And actually, this is the first lesson to be taught. It is the first lesson we should teach our children, the fear of the Lord. Because it is the beginning of the wisdom. It ends every duty, it includes every duty, and regards the whole worship of God and the manner of it, how to worship God. And what is the end of the fear of the Lord? When we fear God and when we teach our children to fear God, what will happen? The end of it is true, happy, and blessed life. Happy and blessed life. Then in verse 12, he asked the question, Who is the man who desires life and loves many days? that he may see good. Who is this man? St. Augustine comments on this verse and says, he asks a question, does not everyone among you answer, me? Is there any man among you does not love life and does not love to see good days? If the Christian loves good days, let him hearken unto God and unto his teaching. When God says to us, Come, you children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Life and good days, hear and do, 
So, if you want good life and good days, hear the commandments of God and do them. The first commandment, verse 13. Keep your tongue, that's the fear of the Lord, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. So, this is an invitation to us if we want a quality life, if we want prolonged days enjoying what God has given to us in this life. If we want to be able to continue to taste and see the Lord's goodness in this world, if so, then David identified the true and only way to happiness, both in this world and age to come, through the fear of the Lord. And the first step in the fear of the Lord, keep your tongue from evil. Beware of offending God through your tongue, by lies, by untruth, by slander, by gossip. He begins with the tongue because sins of the tongue are numerous and abundantly noted in the book of Psalms. They are more difficult to avoid than any others. As St. James said, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle the whole body. And having prohibited in general all manners of the sense of tongue, David makes a special mention, emphasis of the sin of lying as being much more serious and produce countless other sins when he said, your lips, keep your lips from speaking deceit. Speaking deceit means lies. Then, after he finished the sins of the word, he passes to the sins of deed, action. In verse 14, he said, Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Depart from evil. This denotes that evil is near to us. Evil keeps to come close to us, but we should decline it. And David, when he said depart from evil, he regards all sorts of evil. Evil men, evil company, evil things, evil word, evil works, all appearance of evil. We must not only depart from evil, but we must do good. That's why he said depart from evil, and do good. As St. James said, therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Whatever the word of God directs or suggests should be done. Whatever the word of God suggests or directs should be done. Then the third part, after he spoke about sins of the word, sins of the deeds, then he warns us avoiding sins of thought. When he said, seek peace and pursue it. Sins of thought like anger, hatred, envy, enmity. So, we may have, if we keep the sins, then we are not pursuing peace. But when we avoid this sense of thought, then we will retain true peace in everything we are concerned with.
15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. So, in verse 15, he proves the claim he made in verse 13 and 14. In verse 13 and 14, he said, Those who avoid sin and observe commandment of God will have good life and good days. Why? He explained in verse 15. Because God constantly regards the just, always hear their prayer. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. God, on his part, gives a personal care to the righteous who fear him, particularly in the time of tribulation. If the just have any indication of evils approaching them, then immediately they cry to God, they will find his ears open and attentive to them. God watches for them and saves them from many dangers. That's why Isaac of Syria said, the prayer of the humble reaches from his mouth directly to God's ears. The prayer of the humble reaches directly from his mouth to God's ears. Then in verse 16, he said, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Compare between 15 and 16. 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. But in 16, the face of the Lord are against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. So, it is also important to know that there are no blessings for the disobedient, but curses. As there are blessings for the obedient, there are curses for the disobedient. Those who are trapped in their evil and rebellion and completely unwilling to change could find their remembrance gone completely from the earth, as he said, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Verse 16. God turns his face away from the wicked and punishing them by causing their very memory to perish from among men. God is determined that the ungodly shall not prosper. He sets himself with all his might to overthrow them. Verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. So he said in verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Then he proves this claim by saying, there is no blessing granted to man in his present state greater than this, that the eyes of God is on us. So their outward trouble, through affliction of the body, losses, persecution, out of all these, the Lord sooner or later will deliver his people who cry unto him. Paul, when he was in prison, in Philippians chapter 1, he said, I know that God will deliver me, either to the paradise or to my ministry. 
So God will deliver. The promise here is not indeed meant to deliver, to be delivered from trouble here on earth. But the idea is God is able to rescue them from trouble here, and there will be a sure and complete deliverance from all trouble hereafter. That's why St. Paul said, I am hard pressed between the two options. Which one should I choose? To be delivered to heaven, I have desire to depart and be with Christ. This is much better. Or to be delivered to my ministry, still they need me in ministry. So for him, deliverance, it doesn't matter to deliver to paradise or to deliver to his ministry. So God will deliver them. As he said, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. He will deliver them from the outward trouble and also from the inward troubles that comes through the working of corruption in their heart, through the violent assault of Satan, the blasphemous thought that Satan brings into our mind, his temptation. So the, all these things actually can cause internal trouble to the righteous. Many times Satan put thoughts in our minds that are so foreign to us, but God actually will deliver me from all these troubles when I cry to him. Verse 18, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves the such as have a contrite spirit. Broken heart. Those who are crushed by affliction. As we read in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 13, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. So sometimes we feel broken because of the affliction. Or when person under pressure from sin, temptation of sin, so he has sorrow in his heart, for which the heart pierces the person for the temptation of sin. They are wounded by it and broken by it. And in this stage of brokenness, we may think that God is far away, but he is really very, very near. As he said, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. He may sometimes seem to them and to others as he is afar off. But God, God never deserts the, the just when they are afflicted and troubled in heart by injuries and persecution. He will never do this. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God comes and manifests himself to them in a gracious way. And he comes and dwells with them. When we saw the 21 martyrs of Libya, many asked the same question. If we are in their place, what would we do? And I told them during this moment, God was so close. And he gave them grace to be strong in this moment. Because God is close to those with a broken heart. He is always at hand, ministering patience and comforting them with his heavenly consolation to enable them to cope against their trials, which will not be for a long duration. 
He used broken heart and contrite spirit. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. What a contrite spirit? It is a repentant, humble, mourning heart. God graciously absolved this sinner who condemned himself and comforted him by receiving this forgiveness from God. Verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So, here we are reminded that the faithful in their life are not promised exemption from poverty, hunger, need, disease, dishonor, persecution, oppression, because he said many are the afflictions of the righteous. But we are promised spiritual consolation here and full and perfect delivery there. The Lord told us, in the world you will have many tribulations, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. David spoke from his own experience. God's deliverance was real in David's life, and still God's deliverance is real in the experience of many of God's people. In addition, the righteous suffer afflictions because they are so imperfectly righteous. Meaning what? We are not perfect. So the affliction will help to purify us. We need purifying and chastening to free us from the harm of sin, from which they are, the righteous are never wholly freed while they continue in the flesh. That's why in the book of Acts 14.22 we read, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God, because these tribulations help to purify us. Then in verse 20 he said, He, God, guards all his bones, the bones of the righteous. Not one of them is broken. Breaking the bones is a forcible metaphor for the torture of the pain that afflicts the bodily framework. So when they break bone, it is it means persecution or cruel oppression. So keeping the bone without being broken signifies the preservation of man's whole being, how God would preserve them. And also this seems apply to the time of our resurrection at the coming of Christ. As the Lord said, a hair from your head shall not be lost. Also, can this verse apply to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because according to the Gospel of St. John, David spoke not of his own experience, but prophetically about the Lord Jesus Christ. St. John explained that the Roman soldiers who supervised the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ came to his body on the cross, expecting to hasten and guarantee his death in traditional way by breaking the leg of the crucified victim. So he will not have a support and he will die from suffocation. But when they looked carefully, they learned that the Lord Jesus Christ was already dead and they pierced his side to confirm it. As we read in John 19 verse 36, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken to signify the unity and the oneness 
of the Church of God, the body of Christ. Then verse 21, Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. So while the righteous are rescued out of all their evil, but evil brings the wicked to his death, evil shall slay the wicked. His evil ways work out their own punishment and divine retribution overtakes them. As we read in Romans chapter 6, verse 21, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then, He said, evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous, those who hate the righteous, shall be condemned. Our Lord Jesus Christ presented to us the parable of Lazarus and the rich man to compare between the death of the righteous and the death of the wicked. The rich man hated Lazarus, and you, you know how his death was. So all wicked men hate the righteous because Jesus Christ, the righteous, he actually, they, they don't love the Lord. So they hate the righteous. They hate the Lord Jesus Christ and his people because they don't run into wickedness with them because the Lord and his people will not run into wickedness with them. So these people who hate the righteous will be charged at the day of judgment and will be convicted of all their wickedness. In the day of judgment, they will be found guilty and will be punished with everlasting destruction. The last verse, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. So the psalm concludes by predicting the end of the just, which is very, very different from the end of the wicked. The Lord redeems them, redeems them from all evil. The Lord redeems the souls of his servant. His servant, who are his servants? Those who trust him will never be deserted or forsaken. Those who joyfully serve him and graciously Praise him because he purchased us with his blood and delivered us by his power. The Lord redeems the soul of his servant, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. This actually concludes Psalm 34. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.